Welcome back into the podcast. As always, we appreciate you spending some time with us. And Jeff, a fun week, man, as we are uh, got a lot going on sports-wise. We went forever with really nothing going on, but now we're pretty much into all of it. And so a lot to talk about. Uh, we'll start with something closest to our hearts and heartbreaking that Southern Miss uh, lost after having a lead and then uh, Coach Walton's first ball game gave that lead away a lot of fire and energy just one point short yeah one point short it was a heartbreaker too it went had to go to replay uh you know called Mm. incomplete on the field went to replay and then overturn for the touchdown and and, i mean listen give credit to louisiana tech um and the the ref made the right call if you look at the replay his foot was in right call i mean you could you got to give credit where credit's due uh but this week, you know, you've got a team coming in at Tulane, uh, the Battle of the Bell, they call it, at, and between these two uh, two teams, and, you know, Tulane was 24 to nothing this past weekend, and then mm. 27 unanswered points in the second half, Navy comes out with the win. So, Southern's got to be looking at that, too, and say, hey, we could score on this defense, and then Tulane's got to look at Southern and say, hey, we could score on that defense, I mean, uh, both both defenses were getting scored on this past week, and it didn't make it. You know, I, I do my <laughs> weekly little football parlays, and I, I stayed away from this game. They have Tulane minus three and a half. Uh, even though Southern's playing at home, I, I, I didn't feel comfortable picking either team <laughs> as far as my my little betting parlay goes. And, and that's just – No, you'd have to have a strong heart to go with either one of those. Right. Blood pressure didn't have any issues either. Well, These two teams here will give you some. That just tells you right there when you're looking at Tulane minus three and a half at Southern Miss, that just tells you the rivalry and, and the way these seasons are going for these two ball clubs. Yeah, and it's, it's strange, Jeff, the interconnections. You know, uh, of course, these two teams used to be uh, conference rivals, but um, the quarterback at Tulane now is a guy that transferred away from Southern Miss. Uh, coach Walden, the interim head coach, if you look and read a lot of places, maybe the one or two name that you keep hearing is Coach Hall, uh, the OC at Tulane, is being mentioned as a potential candidate for the Southern Miss uh, job. So uh, a lot of um, connections, and I'm going to go see it at the Rock on Saturday um, and just see exactly what it's going to be on Saturday afternoon. should be a fun ball game, everything you've described there. Uh, should be a fun game to watch. You've got to love the energy and the excitement that Coach Walden brought to the sideline uh, Saturday, but that's got to translate into something on the field, and we'll see if that happens on Saturday. Speaking of excitement, Jeff, uh, we turn our attention to the major leagues, and the Bravos clinched their third straight back-to-back-to-back National League East titles. and The most division titles, in Major League Baseball, 20 uh, Yankee fans out there. Yeah, all right. Well, they've got 19 and got a lot of work to do this year. So, uh, just a lot of fun. The Braves, Jeff, have no pitching at all, just zero pitching besides Freed and Freed rolling ankle before we taped tonight. I just got through being nauseous and we were able to regroup and record tonight after – uh, seeing him come out of a ball game with a rolled ankle. But besides him, Jeff, no pitching. 
And I know you're not a big baseball fan, but you're not supposed to win without pitching. But this team here is unbelievable, man, can score. No, you absolutely need pitching. And then I think the com- the, the comment you just made about Southern Miss and their interim head coach has can go right along with this Braves. All the hype is fantastic. And the, Bra- the Braves has had teams throughout the years, Chipper Jones, oh, David uh, Justice, Sid Bream. I mean, they've, ha- they've had teams, but – They've have trouble in the past just finishing, and uh, now they've got the. Well, the, it's the truth. I mean, I'm glad. it's Look, the truth. COVID they got to finish. It. It's good that COVID's got us separated tonight. They've yeah, got to finish. You took all that high note and reminded me with all those division titles. We have that one World Series to our name, but that's hey. okay. Moving right along, let's look at <laughs> basketball, Jeff. Let's go to the NBA, man. I'm watching and, it right now. Um, yeah, and so. You've got um, you've got the Lakers who have done kind of what was expected of them in the West, trying to to make it to the finals. But in the East, a different story. You know, Milwaukee was all everything until the the break for COVID and and played terrible in the bubble. And so you potentially have the Miami Heat or the Celtics making it out of the East, and the Heat have been uh, playing really good basketball. So. That's been a lot of fun to keep up with as well. Yeah, it is. Miami's leading the series. Actually, the game's going on right now. They're leading the series 2-1. to one. And it's the Miami team, you know, there's no more Dwayne Wade, no more Chris Bosh. It's Jimmy Butler and the rest. You got, you know, just about the way they're playing, getting a lot of bench points, uh, you know, coming off the bench and scoring for Miami. Uh, you know, nobody, nobody kind of was talking about Miami. They were the fifth seed in the East. Uh, and they, they, everybody was keeping them in there, but they wasn't expecting them to be in the conference finals. And just one more note on the West, what about the Denver Nuggets coming back mm-hmm. twice down 3-1 to, to, to get to where they're at right now? Uh, and, of course, everybody's going to hang their hat on the Lakers. Everybody knows what LeBron is, Anthony Davis, uh, you know, the way they're playing together right now. They expect – uh, everybody, I say everybody, you listen to everybody talk on ESPN, all the basketball experts, they expect the Lakers to win the championship this year. But, you know, Denver won last night, so Denver could, uh, you know, could sneak up. You know, they're the team that's been been down before twice and come back and made it this far. Yeah, Denver with that win last night, you look at the Joker and what he's able to do at his size, it's just really unbelievable. And then Murray, the way he's uh, asserted himself in the bubble and particularly in these playoffs. But, Jeff, the Joker the other night went on like a 12-point run by himself for the Nuggets, and then AD hit a shot at the buzzer. They could really have two wins in that series. Uh, I'm not an AD fan. He was great for New Orleans, but uh, him and Chris Paul both leaving. And and when they did that to me, I was – didn't care for either one of them after the fact. Just kind of shows my fandom on that side. But AD, that's the biggest shot he's hit in his career. Stepped up and hit a big one to close that one out. That's been a fun series to watch. Let's shift and look at the NFL, Jeff. So, uh, we talked about giving it up, or or that's kind of what the Saints did against the Raiders the other night. Played a, a pretty decent first half of football, played a garbage second half, and uh, go out to Vegas 
it sounds like, man, the last two or three episodes, sounds like you have a pretty good time out in Vegas. But go out to Vegas and I've been uh, there. drop one, Jeff. Yeah, uh, you know, I, 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 I like to see the Saints win. You know, I want to see the Saints win. Uh, I never put my money on the Saints just because the teams that you expect them to beat, they always play down in the ta- to, to their level and make the mistakes and come out either barely winning or not winning at all. And the teams that you, you know, might not give them a chance against or very slim chance, they play lights out and they blow the team out the water. And that was just another typical New Orleans Saints football game if you look at it Monday night just you know and everybody's got the doubts about you know Breeze is he is he done is he aging would they need to pull him out put Winston in do that I mean nothing's wrong with Breeze it's just the team as a whole didn't look like the you know New Orleans Saints wanted to look that second half no you're right Jeff and I even you know, it's easy to question because Breeze has been so good for so long. But uh, when you take a look at how valuable Mike Thomas is and the reason they paid him, I guess he's the highest paid wide receiver in the game. And that was for good reason. I thought the Saints really missed him the other night, which that's a great A analyst that you get right here on this podcast. But <laughs> they missed him. And then, look, the secondary played – Terrible. I mean, they, they let the tight end uh, just eat their lunch time and time again, and then Gruden got in his uh, six-minute or four-minute offense and just let it grind out, and then lo and behold, a Southern Miss guy scores another touchdown. Rashard, Jalen Rashard did that uh, last year as well, or two years ago against the Saints. So, You know, and, and then you go back to the first game with New Orleans. You know, play Tampa Bay. Here comes the GOAT. Uh, you know, Tom Brady on a new team, uh, and the defense picked him apart. I mean, they, they went for a pick six. Secondary, you know, kind of, you know, picked Tom Brady and the and the Tampa Bay uh, offense apart right there and, and come out with the win. And like you mentioned, just, you know, did not show up uh, for the ball game this past Monday. That's right. And so um, we've talked about the NBA. We've talked about Major League Baseball. Uh, high school football, Jeff, something that um, is near and dear to us, something we get together on. Uh, this time of year we get together for the podcast once a week, and then, of course, high school football on Friday nights following Popperville. And Popperville dropped a tough one to a good, really good, undefeated 5A team in Picune. Austin Samples had a really nice night for Picune in their backfield. Look the same on offense, just grinded out a bunch of yardage. I think Samples went for near uh, 200 yards, if not over that. Um, Popperville ran the football a little bit better, and D.J. Richard Bay, the junior fullback, had a nice night. Jeff, I think you had him over 150 yards uh, individually. But Popperville 0-3, going to have to go on the road down to the Bay of St. Louis and play the Rockinshaws, and Rockinshaws off to a good start. Yeah, Rocket Charles three and zero. They just beat Long Beach this past week, fourteen to six. So um, it's these two teams. You know that we were. I think we talked about it on the broadcast Friday. Picayune Popville has become a little rivalry, rivalry, but it's been a friendly rivalry. It will not be a friendly atmosphere down at St. Stanislaus in Bay St. Louis. These two teams. 
Uh, they get after each other, and I mean, they physically on. It's a it's a very physical football game when these two teams meet. So, uh, going to be another tough one. You know, we talked about it on the on the uh, broadcast. Uh, you know, Friday and last week, Popperville's been in this situation before. Last year, they were one and four going into district play. So, this is the last game before district play. Time to get everything, you know, finalized. And Coach Jay Beach, you know, they he schedules his pregame or his uh, preseason game, so to speak, to see what his team's made of, to get their oil check, to see what they've got before they start this district play to come out with another district championship. So, going to be a tough one down at uh, St. Stanislaus Friday. Yeah, it will be, Jeff. And you look at Picune, they get started in district play against the Central Pearl River Central, the other – uh, county school. We certainly don't want to leave uh, Coach Jacob Owen and his crew out of this discussion. They had a tough loss in Gulfport, a game that was really close uh, up into the middle of the third quarter by all accounts, a 14-14 ball game. Uh, PRC got down by a touchdown, then started going for it on some fourth downs. They gave Gulfport a short field on a few possessions there late in that ball game. So, uh, you've heard it said the score probably didn't indicate as close as the ball game was played. I think that was the case uh, for this um, game. And then they have Pascagoula, I believe, to open that district schedule. And so that will be a big game. And you look at that district, Jeff, four playoff teams will be taken. Uh, this game's a game for PRC that they really need to win. Yep, Pascagoula is one and two. Coming into this Friday night, they lost to Ocean Springs 38-14. to So, yep, this is a game that, uh, you know, PRC is going to – they, you know, marked on their schedule. And I, and I say that as I'm circling it on the table here. They kind of circled it. Uh, you know, see what they have these first three games for their preseason, so to speak, games. But this one is the district game. And they have Pascagoula circle. And they want to get this uh, – get the district play off to a good start. So, um, should be a good game between uh, Pearl Central and Pascagoula. Yep, should be, uh, Jeff. Really should be a lot of fun. And speaking of fun, FEC football gets started this weekend, and we were able to steal some time from ESPN and SEC Network analyst Cole Kublick. And Cole, of course, gives great analysis on ESPN and the SEC Network. And so it was a thrill for us to be able to steal some time for him and get him to break down what – he sees in the SEC, we ask him also about, uh, of course, Deion Sanders coming to Jackson State, and we actually got a, a prediction out of him for the potential national championship. So that was a lot of fun uh, with Cole. And, and then also, we talked about the Lakers earlier. We're going to have our author on, and Jeff Perlman. Jeff Perlman has a new book out, and it's actually um, not on the Showtime Lakers. He didn't go that far back. He's already written that book. But his newest book, The Three Ring Circus, and it goes through and details uh, the time with the Lakers with Phil Jackson, Shaq, and Kobe. And so that book uh, dropped yesterday. He's a New York Times bestseller multiple times. So uh, we're excited to visit with Jeff Perlman and talk about that uh, Lakers dynasty and um, what the process was for him putting that book together. But once again, we thank you uh, as listeners, and that will be the order of the interviews. We'll have Cole Kublick going first, followed by Jeff Perlman. So thank you for listening. We appreciate your support. 
Your family's health is our mission. At Highland Community Hospital and in partnership with Forest Health Systems, we're reshaping the mammography experience. We are the only facility in the region offering a 3D mammogram with the lowest patient dose of radiation, all with increased comfort and confidence. Our goal is quality care for you and your family through the compassionate application of advanced medicine. Highland Community Hospital, the best choice for your family. We're privileged tonight to have Cole Kubelik joining the podcast. He's, of course, an analyst for ESPN and the SEC Network, also a co-host of the three-man front, his radio show there in Alabama. Cole, thanks for taking some time for the podcast this evening. Hey, all good, man. I appreciate you having me. Looking forward to it. Cole, I wanted to thank you for taking time, man, and then I wanted to say uh, thank you as well for a podcast hit you did with Scott Van Pelt at the, I guess at the beginning, towards the beginning of this COVID deal, and uh, man, it provided some humor when I needed uh, humor, and uh, just talking about raising youngins and um, describing the way the day-to-day life was, and, and that was a kick, man. So I appreciated that humor early in this deal. Yeah, no, it's uh, just trying to lighten things up a little bit and uh, I guess just inject a dose of reality of what uh, what sounds like a lot of other people were dealing with because uh, I've heard a lot of the same feedback, so I appreciate that. Yeah, and Cole, at that time when you recorded that uh, with Scott Van Pelt, and Stanford Steve, uh, what's going to take place this Saturday, use the word reality. I don't know if we really thought that that would be the reality uh, this fall. Um, excited about what's going to take place Saturday, and did you see this coming? I, I always thought we'd play, and I always thought the SEC for sure would play, and you know, I just kind of – it was more of a who else is going to be along the ride with them. Um, I, I thought the ACC would definitely hold strong. I thought the Big 12 was a bit of a coin toss. Uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, on the front end, I, I don't ever think that I that I really thought that the Big 10 would bow out, especially first. But now it looks like they are potentially going to come back. So, you know, it's um, I tried to just look at it from the perspective of knowing how many people needed it, knowing how important it was, and – Obviously, just uh, you know, being hopeful and optimistic that we would get it. So uh, it's not going to be like anything we've had before. It's going to be a little bit different, and I, I don't know if we're going to get all of it. But you know, we're we're going to give it a good run, and I'm excited about that. Absolutely pumped up. Paul, when you look at um, the SEC media, and the, I guess the votes came in today, or you know, released today on what they thought about the East and the West. On the east side, you've got Florida, one, Georgia, two, Tennessee, three. On the west, of course, Alabama, one, LSU, two, Auburn in that three spot. Is that kind of the way you see it, or do you see something different uh, when these when these games begin to get played and the way it's going to lay out? Yeah, I mean, things can always change. And with, the, with this schedule, I think it could be – it could be really interesting. I, I think Alabama is a, is a clear favorite in the West. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's I think it's a real toss up after that. There are things that I like about Auburn. There's some concerns I have about Auburn. There are things that I like about LSU. There's some concerns I have about LSU. Same with A and M. Uh, I think any of those three teams could finish second in the West. Uh, you know, A and M didn't get any favors done their way in the new schedule. And one of the reasons I really liked it before was 
they had a schedule that they could sort of ease into, uh, that they could sort of build upon throughout the course of the year, and it doesn't really look that way anymore. So, um, you know, Auburn's offensive line is a major concern for me. Uh, the defensive line is a little bit of a concern. Like the linebackers, like the talent in the secondary, but I mean, you got four legitimate players, meaningful players that are gone in that secondary from last year. So it's not just Brown and Davidson. Um, yeah, I think LSU. We all know what they've lost, and, and I was I was still sticking with LSU uh, until Jamar Chase and Tyler Shelvin opted out, and maybe Shelvin decided to come back. But that was that just kind of pushed me over the edge, and and I just don't. I think Miles Brennan's got talent. I think they have other guys on the field that are going to have talent. I think they, they're still going to have a good defense because they got guys who can cover. Uh, Stingley, obviously, he might be the best returning defensive player in college football. Jacoby Stevens is a guy that everybody needs to know about. Uh, not many people talk about him, but he can he can do a lot of different things on that LSU defense. Uh, Cordell Plott's going to be a really good player for them. Jabril Cox, transfer linebacker from North Dakota State, comes over. He's still got up a week up front. Neil Farrell's opted back in, so – there's talent on that defense. There's guys over there. Uh, but you do have a new coordinator in Bo Pelini. We'll see how that goes. But just a ton of question marks. Uh, in the East, I'm, I have Florida win in the East. And uh, I think a veteran quarterback's a big reason why. You talk to Dan Mullen about, uh, about Franks, and he'll tell you – or, excuse me, Trask. He'll tell you, listen, um, this is a young man that makes great decisions. We love his decision-making. We love his confidence. They love his wherewithal of just knowing how to run the offense. And he's got a ton of weapons around him. In the backfield, at tight end, in the slot. A guy like Kadarius Tony, you can line up anywhere. Trayvon Grimes, big physical downfield receiver. So I like that offense. And I don't think the offensive line is going to be great, but I think they have some, some experience back. And I think in a year like this, that's going to be big. So I do think the ease is a little bit deeper than, than most anticipate. Kentucky's going to have a really good football team. Tennessee has a chance to have a good team. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think very much of, of what Vanderbilt has coming back this year. I'll be interested to see how Derek Mason handles it. And I, I think Missouri is a major wild card because none of us really know uh, what to anticipate. And it looks like they're having some issues with COVID right now as far as getting the numbers where they want them. So th- th- that's kind of how I see those two businesses sort of playing out. Cole, when you look at the way that COVID's affected, of course, the scheduling and then even prepping, you mentioned Missouri right there at the end. It'd be easy to say, okay, well, everybody's kind of on an even playing field the same amount of time. But when you look at some changes in staff, you mentioned LSU in particular. Do you think, you hate to say benefited, but who has an advantage or a disadvantage more or less because of COVID and the timing of all this? You mentioned experience and coaching changes. Those would have to play a part. Well, I, I do think that a team like LSU has some advantages. Uh, I think when you when you think about culture, you think about know-how, you, you think about um, you know just recent memory of how to win games, who to count on, who to rely on, who to be able to go out and do different things that can help you win football games. You know, they might have not have the same guys doing it, but there are a lot of guys who are watching those guys doing it. You got to see it every day in practice in the film room in walkthroughs, and obviously in-game. So I, I think that from that perspective, you've got you've got a lot of guys that, that maybe bring a little bit something different in an offseason that a lot of guys were probably soul-searching, looking left, looking right, not really knowing what to do, having to go work out by themselves, having to find different guys to train with, different ways to train. So I think that benefits LSU a little bit. That's why I think, I think leadership is huge this year. Uh, you can talk about experience at quarterback. That's going to be big. Depth is going to be big, but – 
I think most coaches are sort of cross-training everybody right now anyway. All those things are going to matter, and all those things are going to be important. But I think leadership might be the most important. Uh, accountability, dependability, those are the things that, that you're going to have to have, not really even on the field, but off the field. How to manage yourself, you go win a big game, do the right things after that game. Uh, continue to, to sort of keep things between the line and keep doing right. So that that's what I think is is sort of an advantage for LSU. And it's not that other teams don't have that, but LSU just did it on maybe the greatest college football team we've ever seen. You know, it's a legitimate argument now based on how they did it and what they did and who they did it against. So I, I do think that assists LSU a little bit, even though they lost so much. Cole, we record here in South Mississippi. Our Mississippians would be uh, remiss if we didn't ask you about Mike Leach and Lane Kiffin and their splash hires at, of course, Mississippi State and Ole Miss. How do you think that translates on the field? Well, I think it's going to take a while. Uh, I think, and, and listen, I've, I've pretty much I, I've made no secrets about it. Um, I didn't think Ole Miss or Mississippi State needed to make a move. That's nothing against Mike Leach or Lane Kiffin. I think they're both good coaches, but you know, I thought I thought both of those teams were set up pretty well. And I thought Joe Moorhead, you know, not many people talk about the fact that he had kids that had to serve eighty something games in suspension last year, had a quarterback injury last year. So I think Joe Moorhead can coach. And uh, we'll see how it works with Mike Leach. But my biggest concern is, you know, this is an offense that takes rhythm timing, feel, chemistry, have they had the amount of reps that they need to really perform at a high level? I don't think we'll know that for a couple weeks. That's why if I'm LSU, I'm feeling pretty good about getting State early. I'd much rather have that team week one or two than I would, you know, week eight or nine, uh, just because of, you know, some of those things that are going to come with it and getting the extra reps, being in games, knowing what it's supposed to be like. So, um, I think it can work to an extent. I think it can be successful and be good. Uh, I don't think that means he's going to win multiple SEC championships, but you know, he's got a big physical receiver, Osiris Mitchell. Uh, I think Kylan Hill is the best back in the SEC. He's got a quarterback that's had a lot of success against Power 5 opponents, transferring in, and K.J. Costello. So, I mean, there, there, are, there are pieces to this puzzle that could allow it to work and be successful. So I'm interested to see it. Uh, you know, the bad news for them is I've talked to a lot of SEC coaches that have told me that that's where the majority of their time went early in the pandemic is to scout that offense and to get their film study done on that offense first. They wanted to have that thing sort of wrapped up and done before they got to anything else. And they had a lot of extra time to go do it. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out with, with Mississippi State and that offense. Yeah, and interesting. We talk about those two coaches, and this is outside the SEC, but um, the recent hire of Deion Sanders at Jackson State, your opinion on that hire and, and what that means for the SWAC and Jackson State in particular? No, I think anytime you can get a name like that and someone whose whose personality resonates the way his does, um, it, it's going to bring a lot of electricity, a lot of energy, a lot of attention to your program in a good way. And, and it, it should help put them in a position to do some things that maybe they've never done before through recruiting on the field, uh, publicity wise, you know, marketing wise. Um, I, I think it could be fantastic. People are going to say that, you know, Dion's never coached, or, you know, never done it, never organized a team or run a team, which is fine. It's fair. I mean, no, nobody's going to really argue that, but at the same time, I, I think you look at some of the other parts that, 
really going back to those two Mississippi moves, um, a lot of people would tell you why those were made, at least one of those were made, and that is, you know, fan excitement is, is just as important these days. You know, keeping people tuned in, getting people into the game, into seats, you know, buying gear, buying tickets, making donations. And people will tell you that, that that's uh, athletic directors care just as much about that as they do, you know, winning eight, ten games a year. So uh, Deion Sanders is going to bring a lot of positive things to that campus, to that football facility, and, and to that football team when they're on the field. And uh, I, I don't know how much better they could have done, to be perfectly honest with you. Cole, when you look at it, you, you're talking about fans and excitement. We won't know, I guess, SEC-wise until it's teed up Saturday. But um, the reduced number of fans in the stands, the atmosphere prior to, do you think that's going to make a difference, or does that matter once the ball's kicked off? Well, yeah, it's going to make a difference because you you don't have you don't have the advantage of you know forcing an offense to call a timeout or not be able to change the play or not being able to, you know, get into the right protection, uh, confusion where one guy busts an assignment because he couldn't hear the check or the, or the, or the, or the different play calls. So yeah, there are big advantages that come with that. There's an intimidation factor uh, that, that comes with that. I mean, you don't think a lot of people know when they go into death Valley at night that you know, they're not going to be able to hear anything. They're not going to be able to make checks at the line of scrimmage. Things aren't going to be, uh, what they are in practice every day, absolutely. So, you know, it's um, it, it, it's it's a situation that I don't think – I do think having some fans there is, is going to help bring a little bit of normalcy. And it's going to make it – it's going to make it feel better than a lot of people imagine. I think a lot of people have sort of this completely hollow view of what stadiums are going to be and sound like. And I've been in a couple different ones. I was in the Liberty Bowl with around 4,500 people. Uh, you know, I was at Coastal Carolina with uh, around 10,000 people, and I was at Ames, Iowa with, you know, a couple hundred. So I, I've, I've seen all the different atmospheres, but I can tell you having some people there, having the band there, cheerleaders, dance team there spread out, it does make a difference. It does help, and it gives you a little bit of a normal reaction. It gives you a little bit of energy, and, uh, you know, the bad side for the home team, too, is when it gets quiet, when things don't go your way, it gets really quiet. And you can tell. So I think it can kind of work against the home team at the same time. When you look at when we go back to the Deion Sanders and the nickname Primetime, uh, whether it's self-labeled or given out, just a certainly awesome name for a secondary uh, player. A program that you're close to in Auburn, you look at the first team, a defensive end, Big Cat Bryant, and that's the way it's printed. Tell me about uh, – this guy and, and that name that's printed there, Big Cat Brian, what type of player is he called? Well, he's, he's a guy that, that physically, you know, kind of getting off the bus, you know, he's a win. You know, he's 6'5", almost 6'6", six, six, got long arms, lean, thick. But, you know, he, he's he's a guy that, that I think has the ability. Uh, he has the athleticism at his size. He's got a good motor. I think he plays hard, but – you know, I don't, I don't think that, that that switch has been flipped completely just yet. You know, there, there hasn't been a ton of production out of him. And it's it's one of those deals where, yeah, you had you had two individual defensive linemen that, that took, you know, over 20 tackles for a loss last year. So, you know, maybe some of the you know, maybe some of the main course have been gobbled up, but at the same time, you, you you'd like to see a little more production for a guy that 
is apparently going to be leaned upon by a lot of Auburn fans and be the cornerstone of the defense. He had a sack and a half last year. So a lot of Auburn fans have been waiting on it. This could be a breakout year because he does have that ability and he does have physical presence, but he's definitely a guy to watch uh, for that Auburn defense this fall. For LSU or Auburn or whoever may may be to win the West, what would um, what would have to happen to Alabama, uh, Cole? What, what what could you see that would trip them up? I think you're probably going to have to have some injury issues, particularly on the defensive line. Uh, I think you're going to have to have quarterback controversy or issues, maybe a bit of a juggling act of who should be the starter, who is the starter. Uh, maybe even trying to force a, a Bryce Young into the lineup when he's not ready, uh, just because you see some athleticism that you feel like could potentially give you something a little bit more exciting. Um, it's going to be tough, though, because I, I feel like when you look at how all the other teams match up to them, I mean, go back to last year, everybody complains about their defense, and everybody talks about how bad Pete Golding was, but, but look at the offenses that they played last year. I mean, they, they played some offenses that could, that could go, and – you know, I don't think it's going to be that to the same level this year. I don't think when you look across the board, they're they're not going to be anywhere near the high potent offenses on Alabama's schedule that they were a season ago. So um, they, they're going to have to be riddled with injuries, and I think they're going to have to have some position battles that just don't really work themselves out. There's a bit of a back and forth, some sort of a juggling act, particularly a quarterback, where uh, things just aren't necessarily going their way. Big picture, Cole, Clemson, Alabama in the end, or do you have something different than that? I mean, I think Ohio State could be in the mix there. Uh, it looks like, uh, you know, why Davis is trying to get back in. If, if he can find himself on the field and, you know, he, he can get back on that offensive line, I think he and Trey Smith are the two best offensive linemen that are going to play football this fall. Um, you know, I, I also look at um, – I'll also look at it, just kind of what they have at the quarterback position in Justin Fields. Well, they'll replace Watt on defense, but uh, Ohio State could be that team that, that's right there with an Alabama or Clemson challenging for sure. Oh, man, we can't thank you enough for your time this evening. We appreciate you taking time for us. Yeah, man, thanks for having me. Look forward to doing it again soon. Thank you, Cole. Your family's health is our mission. At Highland Community Hospital and in partnership with Forest Health Systems, we offer a wide range of healthcare options. From our internal medicine clinic to advanced surgery and emergency services, from the Highland Center for Women's Health to our primary care and pediatric clinic, our goal is quality care for you and your family through the compassionate application of advanced medicine. Highland Community Hospital, the best choice for your family. We are privileged tonight to be joined by New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman as he had his Three Ring Circus book come out just yesterday. Is that correct, Jeff? Yep, just yesterday. Yeah, excited, man, to uh, to dig in. ESPN.com had uh, a piece, parts of the book out. I believe that was yesterday as well and was able to, to read some of that. So, Jeff, thanks for taking time for the podcast. It's my pleasure. Jeff, tell us, you, you, of course, written about the Showtime Lakers. What about Phil, Kobe, and Shaq in that period of time interests you to dig in and write this book? Well, I just think the characters are really big. You know, you got three dynamic characters, sort of Shaq, Kobe, Phil, all at the same time. And they're all at Los Angeles. And just like, you know, how do you not 
how do you not want to write about people that huge and that dynamic and that, you know, enormous. So I just, uh, I just thought, you know, it'd make a great book. And that's sort of what I, uh, what I went with, you know, you go with what you know. And I just saw, I live out here. So it just made sense that, uh, if you take the topics and the proximity, the subjects, it just made sense. When you look at the difference between the two, Jeff, when you look at the difference between that Showtime era and the book you did there compared uh, to this work and to to this team, what do you see different? Totally different characters. I mean, you know, Magic was there. Magic was this calm, cool rookie who came in very prepared. Kareem was a very stoic center um, who, you know, wasn't really embraceable, but was very sort of... Um, you know, he's a dominant all-time player and generated a lot of respect. And on the other side, you know, Kobe comes in. He's very young and very immature. He didn't have the poise of magic. And Shaq, obviously, was this, you know, larger-than-life jovial figure, like a million times more jovial than anyone in those 80s Lakers. So just a different era. Um, the thing they had in common was a lot of talent, and they both had sort of iconic coaches. I mean, the uh, obviously, Pat Riley was an iconic, iconic um Coach with you know became one with the '80s Lakers and then Phil Jackson. They were both very good manipulators of players, uh, understanders of talent, stuck to a system. So the main thing they both had was talent and great coaches. Jeff, when you look at just what I was able to read earlier um, today, since Kobe's passing and late in Kobe's career and post career with his daughters, that's a different Kobe than what was at the front end of, of this book that, that you're writing and on the front end of uh, what people really almost have forgotten now. And then when you see Shaq on TNT uh, in their show, that's even a different Shaq than what you're going to describe at times in this book. Are both of those correct? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you know, Shaq has always been kind of Shaq. Like, he's not that different than he was. He's always had sort of this jovial way about him and kind of lighthearted and, you know, snarky and fun. And I think, so I think, I mean, I just think sort of he's been consistent and Kobe went through a metamorphosis that a lot of athletes go through, which is he started as kind of young and brash and stayed pretty brash and didn't really want to listen to other people. And as he got older and as his sports mortality came into light and he wasn't, he couldn't do what he used to do and he got hurt and all that stuff. I just think he um, he matured, you know. And I think like he matured a lot. And I just uh, as you get older, hopefully we all mature and we kind of learn from our mistakes. And I feel like he did that in a huge way. Yeah, and maturity I guess leads me to Phil Jackson, the way that he, of course, the last dance introduced us there in the front end of of COVID, and everybody kind of consumed that. That was able to scratch our sports itch, and so. Everybody kind of re-remembered exactly what Phil was to the Bulls. That experience that he had with that team built him to be able to take care of, of this team as well, Jeff? I think so. In a lot of ways, I do. Um, I mean, Jordan was a lot different than Kobe, and Shaq was a lot different than Jordan. Jordan bought in from the beginning. You know, he, he was told by Phil, you know, you're not going to average as many points. You're... You're going to win more, though, but you have to be part of this system. And, you know, to his credit, um, Jordan bought in. With Kobe, it took a lot. It was a lot harder. 
it was a lot harder. I mean, Kobe was resistant to it. He didn't want Phil. He made Phil made clear that the the alpha of it all was going to be um, was all was going to be um, was going to be Shaq, and Kobe wasn't used to that. So, I think it was tough for it was tough at first for Kobe to to buy in, and it was never tough for Jordan to buy in. But Phil Jackson was very patient. Um, he let his locker room leaders leave. He didn't always enter. He didn't. He wasn't overly intrusive. So. Uh, he just, you know, and when you come in with six rings, that speaks for you. Mm. He came with six rings. That spoke for him. So he had respect right off the bat. When you look at the book dropping as it did yesterday and now the Lakers being prominent again, I guess where you are, Jeff, they, they probably stay in prominence. I, I mean, I hear it say that it will always be a Lakers town, kind of regardless of what the Clippers moves they make. But uh, what timing for you to be able to get this book together as, as the role that LeBron and AD and the Lakers look to close out a special year for them? It's funny. In a way, it's good. In a way, it's not. Um, I think fans are more nostalgic for the old days when their teams stink. You know, like Showtime, when that came out, the Lakers yeah. were miserable and people are kind of clamoring for it. Now, they're, having, they're enjoying the good, old, they're, the good old days are right now, and they're happening with, you know, the best player in basketball. And, um, in fact, there is the one similarity is I, you can make the argument the Lakers now, just like the Lakers then, had two of the five best players in basketball on their team. And when you have two of the five best players, your odds of winning are drastically increased. So, um, you know, it's pretty similar, but it's not, it is much worse to promote a book when a team is doing well, because people are not as interested or focused on the past as they are. So it's interesting. Well, you've got that, and then COVID going uh, for you too, Jeff. What has it been? Uh, I mean, I well, well, well. you're on. A- <laughs> so, COVID is not going for me. I assure you, I'm miserable. I'm stuck in my house. Usually, <laughs> part of the joy of promoting a book is you get to travel and go around and do signings and do events. And I'm, I'm literally sitting here talking to you, not exaggerating, on an ironing board in my son's room. Wow. Well. And so the book writing process, so Jeff, was the hay kind of in the barn when COVID started or you still have some work to do on the book? How did that, I know the oh, I was done. part, but the finishing, okay, so you were done. I was done. The, uh, the book, um, the book was all completed. Uh, in fact, when Kobe died, the book was done. It was already done. Mm-hmm. So the big adjustment was sort of thinking about that and how I'm going to, you know, what that's going to be like and, um, how to promote a book and also be, be respectful to the legacy of this guy who passed, you know? So that was, um, it's kind of awkward. That's a little awkward. Sure. When, when you look at sports figures, uh, Jeff, and you certainly covered some of the iconic sports figures and United States, uh, history, when you look at it, we want to be told that our favorite uh, players have basically walked on water. Uh, you don't normally go that route. You you tell tell it like it is and like it was. Um, you just mentioned Kobe and trying to be respectful. How how tough has that been? Because I haven't read the book, but I'm sure that there's not a lot of things that you leave out. That's usually your style when you cover something. Yeah, I um, I just I'm not a, I'm not in any way, shape, or form looking to bash athletes or, you know. I don't want to be TMZ. I just think you have to tell a real story. Like I do this the same way and I'm writing a book about a biography of Barack Obama or John F. Kennedy or Ronald Reagan. Like you're, you're writing a book that's supposed to be truthful about a period in time. So, um, 
you know, so, so my approach is I, ju- I just want to know the truth. And what's difficult is I've never had a protagonist of the book die while mm-hmm. you're, I mean, that's a new level. Of, I've never had that happen. So that's when it gets a little awkward because you're talking about someone who people are really, myself included, are really sad about his passing. And at the same time, you're trying to explain who he was. And sometimes that explanation is kind of dark. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's definitely difficult. Sure. Jeff, when you look at it, um, the books that you've written, is there a favorite? Uh, all coaches, as soon as they win a championship, a reporter's going to ask about their favorite team if they've won multiple. <laughs> I guess your books and, and you've sold so many of them through the years. Is there a favorite or a favorite topic that you dove into? Um, I, uh, I would say it's funny if I were really a good book promoter, I would say, Oh, this one, yeah, definitely. This one. You know, like, <laughs> it's like how athletes, when you ask an athlete after they win, like, yes, Kobe, so you just won your third in a row. Is this the sweetest? Oh, it's the sweetest. But the truth yeah. of the matter is, um, I think my USFL book was the most rewarding. My last book, because I was told repeatedly not to write it. My agent told me nobody wants it. My publisher told me they didn't want it. And I just really believed in it and believed in it and believed in it. And it's, it's definitely one of the best books I wrote. I don't know. It's one of my better books, but what I really am proud of is the fact that I was told don't do it. And I did it. So that means something to me. Yeah. Neat stuff. In the process, when you take on a project like you have here, Jeff and that USF, but how many interviews, how many hours, the, the work that it takes to get to completion and, and I hate to say one of your typical books, but let's just take this book. How many interviews uh, went into being able to do this book, Jeff? This was about 300 interviews, I would say, which is kind of low. I like doing, I mean, I love doing the interviews. That's a big part of it for me. Um, so this was about 300 because basketball rosters are, uh, are pretty small. Um, so this was fewer than, than most, you know. Um, but it's about 300. It takes about a year and a half, two years. Deep, deep dive, deep, deep dive. Try to interview everyone. Looking for information that hasn't been told before, people haven't conveyed before. Um, it's exhausting. It's one of the great experiences. Of, of, I highly recommend writing a book, but it does beat the crap out of you. There's no doubt about it. I can't even imagine. Just reading, and I consider myself a sports nut, but just reading the the about the scrimmage, about the summer scrimmage where Shaq and Kobe are, are heated and getting after each other. I, I'd never um, heard really that side of that story. And so that I can't wait to read the book and just reading that little piece <coughs> and, and hearing that. Is, is that to just be expected throughout the book from stuff that we have not heard before? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think the main thing is like um, when people say, people ask me sometimes in interviews, like, did you learn anything new? Now imagine if I didn't learn anything new. Like what kind of reporter would I be? <laughs> and also like imagine the the stupid honesty that would take. Yeah, no. I didn't really learn anything new. I'm sorry. I just I just figured I'd throw out, out, out there everything you guys knew already and you hope you'd stop being a sucker for it. So I mean there's obviously like you're writing about familiar situations, you know, like you guys know when they won the championships and you know who they beat and you know Iverson and Reggie Miller and Keith Van Horn and all those guys. But like what you try to do is add context and get people who might have never been asked before about it who have particular memories about it. And that's sort of the, the challenging fun of it all, you know? Yeah, and you mentioned nostalgia earlier, Jeff. That, 
that period of time in the NBA, just seeing the name Polynes and then thinking back uh, to some of the King, that Kings team in particular and how good that team that the Lakers were able to take care of. It's, as a sports fan, it's always fun to jog the memory and, and take a trip back. Oh, man. Those Kings teams were freaking great. I mean, they were they were more talented than the Lakers that one year. I mean, and if you look top to bottom, I mean, loaded. And Chris Webber was a stud, and Pager was a stud, mm-hmm. and Mike Bibby was a stud, and Doug Christie was a lockdown defender, and they had, like, Bobby Jackson. I mean, Sacramento. The thing that I, I honestly believe is um, it sounds simple. And maybe it's a little too simplistic, but there's some truth to it. I think the Sacramento Kings really believed they were going to beat the Lakers. And I think the Lakers knew they were going to beat the Kings. Like, I just mm-hmm. think the Lakers knew. Like, they just had this thing. Like, this team isn't going to beat us. There's no way they're going to beat us. And Sacramento was like, if we play really well, we can win this series. And the Lakers are like, we're winning this series. And there's a big difference. And that's a lot of Kobe right there. That's a lot of Kobe. That's a lot of him just being like, to hell with it. I'm going to do anything I have to do to win this series. Yeah, the same bullheadedness, uh, so to speak, that maybe hurt Shaq or put him and Shaq on different wavelengths really <laughs> served its purpose in that uh, in those series, huh? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, Kobe was. I mean, look, Kobe was not perfect. Shaq wasn't perfect, but they both really wanted to win. They had different ways of expressing it, but they really went after it. So it's, um, you know, like they were. I'm telling you, guys like Chris Webber, Chris Webber was a great player, a great all-time NBA player. But very few guys had what Kobe had, which was just, I would rather cut one of my toes off than lose this game. You know, like if someone said, you can win another NBA championship, we're going to have to cut your pinky off with a rusty knife. And he said, he would probably say, well, we'd be able to sew it off, sew it back on afterwards. (laughs) They'd be like, yeah, probably. All right, do it. You know, do it. Um, he was just that way. It's not a healthy way to live in certain ways. Like, I wouldn't want to be that way, but it worked for him. Well, Jeff, when you look at the way that players, current players, that he was so endeared, I mean, the passing, then you saw just an outpouring of, of love. And that's, I think, what athletes from other sports as well really respected and envied about Kobe is, is that that certain drive that you're describing. I agree. And uh, it's rare. Like, not that many people have that. And, um, you know, not that many people have it. Um, and on the one hand, I think I would have rather been Shaq than Kobe. Mm-hmm. Like, I think Shaq enjoyed it more. You know, I think he enjoyed sure. the journey more. Um, but on the other hand... I just don't know. I feel like Shaq enjoyed it. And I feel like his off seasons were spent eating cheeseburgers and floating in a pool and going to hip hop concerts and starring as big genies in movies. And I think that worked <clears throat> like you're only 27 and rich and you didn't get that one time in your life. So Kobe was the killer who, you know, wanted to dominate at all costs and Shaq wanted to dominate, but he also really wanted to have fun. So in a way, I think he probably enjoyed the ride a little more. Jeff, when you looked at uh, Kobe and just hearing, you know, some of his high school days and, and it almost described as like socially awkward. And then when you've uh, realized and heard some of Tiger Woods stories and, and seen that, any comparisons between those two and, and that drive and that it almost makes you uh, an oddity in our society? Oh, 100 percent. 
Um, it's just not natural to be raised that way. And I see it a lot out here in Southern California with young kids where the, a lot of parents are just like, You're, we're going to raise my kid to be a baseball player and he's going to play baseball year round. And if you have to miss the prom or you have to miss the senior dance or you have to miss picture day, like that's all right. Cause it's pursuit of excellence. And you have these coaches who go along with it and say, you know, nothing but the best. And, and then like, all right, they reach the major leagues and they don't know how to open a checking account or they reach the major leagues and they don't know how to, how to have a conversation with a young woman or they reach the major leagues and they don't know how to cut open a coconut with a nut. You know, like it's where you're giving up. There are natural progressions in life that most of us have. that A lot of these guys lack. And I think you look at Tiger Woods, you look at Kobe, uh, probably Jordan a little bit, but not as much. There's just certain things they just lack because so much time has been devoted to being the singular purpose and you forget, like, life is a lot more than just hitting a baseball or dunking a basketball. Absolutely. Jeff, when you look at the dive that you've taken recently, you look at the Lakers team now doing what they're doing in the bubble for uh, for all that that is, is worth and the way that the NBA has worked that out, and then to have the history you have in the context of the Showtime book that you've written, how much has the NBA changed and how much has it stayed the same? Art's changed a lot. Um, I mean, it's changed in a few ways. Number one, I've been having some interesting discussions. Like, what does Shaq look like in the modern NBA? Like, if you took Shaq and just zapped him, right? Zap him out of 2000 and put him 20 years later. There's no one like him, but it may not work. Like, because yeah. he's running around, chasing around some 6'10 outside shooting center. He's, he can't do it. On the other hand, the 6'10 outside shooting center would just uh, get bulldozed by, by Shaq. So I don't know how that... It's funny. Like I said this to someone the other day. This is interesting. I was talking to a, ta- a Celtics fan. You guys know Taco Fall? Sure. Oh, yeah. Right. Taco Fall, 20 years ago, is a top five NBA draft pick and probably number one. And yeah. Kyler Murray, the Arizona quarterback, is probably... Six round draft pick, and he switched to like defensive back. Like, (laughs) times have changed so much in what basketball looks like and how it how it is, and so it's crazy. And then off the court, just the agents have so much more power than they used to. The representatives have so much power. The agencies that it's a lot harder for a game to cover because it used to be you would go through the public relations person on a team if you want to talk to someone, and it would be. You know, to get interviews was not a big deal, and now it's kind of a nightmare. Because the game has changed in that regard, majorly. Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, once again, I mean, this is just short excerpt of the book, and um, it piqued my interest numerous times. But to know that Kobe was competitive enough, or I Shaq, and, and I guess also, but to know which reporter maybe – even if it was made up in their own mind, was kind of Team Kobe or Team Shaq. What a dynamic you kind of got into there. That, that was very interesting. Yeah, they just had loyalties, and they tested your loyalties, and they wanted to know who you were with. And um, It's funny. It was very hard to not be one of them. Like, there were reporters who were like, I don't want to be I don't want to be a Shaq guy. I don't want to be a Kobe guy. I want to be a reporter. Like, I want to report. On, like, it seems weird to even the idea that you're going to be one or the other because you're there to cover the team. But those guys were very specific about who they trusted and, um, you know, who they were, who they were behind and who they wanted to con- confide in. And so you really had to decide, am I a Kobe guy or am I a Shaq guy? It's weird. 
It really was. And then I look at like a Brian Winworth who was a LeBron guy, right? Coming out and, and then he departed from that. But still, I mean, that's how I look at him as a, a LeBron journalist coming out and to read that. That was kind of some of the parallels. And then, uh, of course, Ahmad Rashad and the, <laughs> the relationship that an insight that Michael Jordan was able to give him. It, it was just very interesting to read that, that section of it. Yeah. I am in all my career as a writer. I feel like I've never been an anybody guy. Like I just show up and try to write and I don't, it just don't work that way. You know, it's kind of interesting. Well, that's the way journalism is supposed to be, right? Yeah. You think so? It used to be at least. Yeah. It's definitely changed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, man, we know that you have, uh, certainly been making your rounds and to jump on a podcast here in South Mississippi says a lot about, um, you and the time that you're willing to spend with folks, please tell our listeners where they can go find not only this book, but the other uh, best-selling books that you have that you've written over your years. Uh, yeah. Well, if you go to, you know, obviously Amazon or Barnes and Noble.com, or you can also follow me on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Uh, and I have a website, Jeff Perlman.com. But, um, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Seriously, I've spent a lot of time in Mississippi because I researched, I wrote Brett Favre's biography and Walter Payton's biography. So a lot of time in the Kill, a lot of time in Columbia, a lot of time in Jackson. And it's funny because I'm a, uh, I'm a liberal Jewish guy from New York. And when people ask, I always speak about the hospitality and the kindness and the warmth that I've always experienced in Mississippi. So I might be a fish out of water a little bit in Mississippi, but I have, uh, I have great love for your state. Oh, that's very kind of you, Jeff. And look, we certainly appreciate your time tonight. And I, I can't wait to dig in further to the book. So I'll be one of those that's going to, when we get off here, I promise you, I'm going online and purchase purchase the book. So thank you for joining us this evening. It's my pleasure. You guys take care of yourselves, please. Thank you, Jeff. All right. I'll see you all. Bye-bye.